Again, the singing has been beautiful this morning. I hope you'll continue to pray for me and pray for each other as we make an effort to speak to you. On Friday, I was blessed to fly down to Lake City, Florida. I actually flew into Gainesville, Florida, and was picked up and brought back to Lake City for a meeting on Friday night and Saturday morning at Salem Primitive Baptist Church. Uh, this church was celebrating its uh, anniversary. They are 181 years old. They were established 181 years ago. I've been going to this church nearly 30 years in the fall, but their anniversary meeting was this past January, and because of the COVID, they were not able to have it then. But they didn't just dismiss having it at all. They just kept waiting until things got better and rearranged a, another time, a new date, and it was this past weekend. And I uh, enjoyed so much being with them once again. Uh, preached for them Friday night, Saturday morning. And also the pastor of this church, well, he, Elder Herman Griffin, he had pastored this church for many years, but due to age and health, he has stepped aside and uh, another younger man has taken his place. Uh, Elder Rick Bicknell, who I baptized about 40 years ago. Anyway, uh, Brother Herman and Sister Catherine Griffin are celebrating their 69th wedding anniversary today. So that was a blessing to be with them over the weekend for a wonderful celebration at the church for their anniversary and also Brother Herman and Sister Catherine. Flew back from, uh, had to go through Atlanta. That was joyful. And, uh, you know, I was there for uh, two or three hours, a uh, layover. And anyway, of course, my thoughts began to turn toward today you know, what the Lord might place upon my mind to speak to you about today. And I thumbed through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you know, that's how it works sometimes, and got home and settled in, and finally I thought, well, I'll just go to bed and get, hopefully get a good night's rest, and maybe I'll have a clearer mind in the morning. So I got in this morning, uh, I feel like maybe hopefully the Lord answered prayer, and my mind uh, settled upon Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12. Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12. The psalmist here said, God has spoken once. Twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto the Lord, and unto thee, O Lord, are given mercies. Now he says, God has spoken once. It doesn't mean God has only spoken one time. For we know God has spoken multitudes of times since the beginning of time. And he spoke in the beginning of time. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then we have that phrase repeated a number of times, and God said, and God said, and God said. Such as God said, let there be light, and there was light. God just gave the command, and it came to pass, just like God commanded. We find that God spake to the nation of Israel on top of Mount Sinai uh, when he gave the law to them, the moral law, the Ten Commandments the ceremonial law, how to worship him in a way that pleased him in the Old Testament day, and the civil law, all given to the nation of Israel by God, and God spoke it to them. We find in uh, Hebrews 1 and 1, where it says, But God, who at sundry times in divers manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken also unto us by his Son, of whom he made the heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Notice this plural, worlds. By him, Jesus Christ made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Notice he made all things by the power of his word, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. 
And when he by himself purchased from our sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. Those are three wonderful verses on what the book of Hebrews with, isn't it? So power belongs unto God, but he says God has spoken this once. Now that also simply means that when God says something one time, it's of far greater value and importance than all the words that all the men of this world have spoken since the creation of time. You can depend upon what God says. God is truth. Uh, God cannot lie. God cannot change. He's truth personified. So God has spoken once, and we need to pay attention to what God has spoken. He says, twice, yea, have I heard this. And the first thing of the two that he has heard is that power belongeth unto God. The word power here literally means strength and might. There are places in God's word where the word power has reference to authority. Uh, and we might see a little bit of that later on, Lord willing. But here it means strength and might. And who does it belong to? It, it belongs to God. And since it belongs to God, God is able to give it to whomsoever he will, which he did in many situations and instances and on many occasions. That's something that uh, a lot of people have not yet grasped and learned, that power belongeth unto God. When we think about God's power, we need to understand there's not a power equal to or greater than God's power. I look in Daniel 4.35 and it says, For all the inhabitants of earth are reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, or saith unto him, What doest thou? None can stay his hand because he has all power. And no one can say unto him, What doest thou? Oh, they may, but they cannot do it justifiably because he's the sovereign God of the universe and he answers to nobody, you see. Job 23, 13, Job says, He's of one mind, and who can turn him? For whatsoever his soul desireth, he doeth. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. He says, Whatever the soul of God desireth, he doeth. And he works his will. He has a desire, and now he works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand, and none can say unto him, What doest thou? Psalms 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And you put just those three verses together. you got God does what he pleases. Whatever his soul desires, he does that. And he works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth. Who can stay his hand? I said to him, what doest thou? When you begin to see this in God, then statements like God would like to do something goes right out the window, doesn't it? Statements like, God wants to do this. God wants to save you if you just let him. God wants to do this if you just cooperate with him. How does that fly in the face of what I've already given to you this morning? If it's God's will, if it's God's pleasure, and he's going to do whatsoever he hath pleased, I, I don't think man is going to overpower that, do you? Doesn't sound like it to me. So we see that God has spoken once. God is the omnipotent God of glory. God is one that power belongs unto him, you see. In the creation, just speaking that just for a moment, and I want to move on from that, but we go over to Jeremiah 20, uh, 51, 15, and in this passage it says that God made the earth by his power. All right? He established the world by his understanding, and he stretched out the heavens by his discretion. Jeremiah says when 
creation came into existence, it just didn't happen. God created it. And he made the earth by his power. It took power to make this earth, and God's power was demonstrated in that. And he established the earth, or the world, by his understanding. And he stretched out the heavens by his discretion. There's wisdom in the creation. There's planning in the creation. We see the master plan, don't we? So we go to Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firm that showeth what? The firm that showeth his handiwork. It's the handiwork of God. So power belongeth unto God. It's, he has supreme power. He has omnipotent power. Revelation 19, 6 says, For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. It's the only time that word's used in the Bible, but obviously what the word means is demonstrated in all 66 books. The Lord God omnipotent means he has all power. It's what Jesus told his apostles in Matthew 28, 18. He tells them upon giving them that second gospel commission that all power is given unto me both in heaven and also in earth. Sounded like he's got it all wrapped up to me. He's got all power in heaven. He's got all power in earth, whether it be might or strength or whether it be authority. But everybody hasn't grasped that. I look here in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and I find where the Lord Jesus Christ, after being baptized, immediately after being baptized, is led up into the mountain by the Spirit to be tempted to the devil. And the second thing the devil speaks unto him about, he says, he takes him up to uh, a high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, now, if you would just bow down and worship me, I have the power <laughs> to give you these kingdoms. I have the power to give it to whomsoever I will. It sounds like he's trying to talk like God. <laughs> and the devil wants to be God. He wants to imitate God. He wants to emulate him. He wants to be just like him. But he's not. <laughs> he's simply not. But he tries to sound like it, doesn't he? And so he offers God all these kingdoms and the power over them, but he fails to recognize that power belongs unto God. When the Lord Jesus Christ came before Pilate, we read in John chapter 19, as he's before Pilate, Pilate has examined him, and Pilate has declared to, his, to the Jewish people, rather, he declares unto them, I find no fault in this man. And Pilate at the beginning is quite willing to release him. He's found no fault in him, and of course, it doesn't surprise us because there was no fault in him. You can't find something that doesn't exist. So he found no fault in him. But the Jews didn't have any of that. So Pilate kind of appeals to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, Know ye not I have power to crucify you, and I have power to release you. Now, Pilate thought he had the power to do that. And I guess from a civil point of view in that particular day, him not recognizing who he was talking to, he felt that way. But the Lord replied by saying, you'd have no power at all, except my Father had allowed you to have it, giveth it unto you concerning me. You'd have no power concerning me at all, except my Father give it to you. In other words, through the providence of God, through the dignity of God with his creation, he's allowed Pilate to be in this position at this particular time. And Pilate does have power, generally speaking, he would have power of the ordinary man to crucify him, power of the ordinary man to release him. Uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ made a statement about his power back in John 10, 18 and 19, with something like this. He says, For this cause doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life. 
He said, I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take it again. No man takes it from me. Now that's real power. Jesus eventually will be crucified. Eventually the nails will go through his hands, driven there by the Roman soldiers and through his feet by the Roman soldiers. A sword shall pierce his side. But I can assure you, while they were guilty indeed of the killing and crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was Christ who still laid his life down. He had the power to do it. As he told his disciples many times prior to that, not only I have power to lay down my life, but I got power to take it again. Three days and three nights later, he took his life again when he self-resurrected from the tomb. Power belongs unto God. God has said this once. <laughs> That's all he has to say. It's just one time. You know, I wish I could get along in life with telling people just one time. <laughs> it's one time, you know, but they got to hear it two and three and four and all that kind of stuff, especially with children. But when God speaks, that's sufficient. He doesn't need anything to prop it up. He doesn't need anything to make it any stronger. That's as strong as, uh, as it needs to be and can be. If God has said it, then that's it. So God has spoken once. Twice I've heard this power belongeth unto God. I want to think about that in terms of life itself this morning. In the very beginning, we find where God created the heaven and the earth and on the sixth and final day of creation, he took the dust of his creation, the dust of the earth, and he made a man out of it. He created man. That's real simple. That's easy to believe. I understand it by faith. No question about it. When I compare that to all the things that evolution would ever present to me, it's just a no contest. <laughs> just a no contest. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. On the sixth and final day of creation, he takes that dust and he makes a man out of it. And he makes him a full-grown man. He didn't make him a little baby. He didn't have to grow up, uh, you know, uh, years of uh, growing up one thing and becoming a two and becoming an adult. He made him a full-grown man in the very beginning. And the Bible says that God breathed his nostrils, what? The breath of life. And he became a living soul. Only God can give life. God is life. He's the source of life. Whether we're talking about natural life, talking about spiritual life, there is no other source of life. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. He said to his apostles there in the 10th chapter of John, uh, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. He is the life giver. The life giver. That's where life comes from. The very beginning. And then he made man and brought a woman unto Adam. Of course, he took a rib out of Adam's side. He put him into a deep sleep, took the, took the rib out, made a woman, brought him unto the man. And God, in his creation, made him where a man and a woman, a man and a woman, all right, be able to come together in an honorable way as man and wife, excuse me, husband and wife. And then they would be able in that manner, in that way, to have a family. And God blessed the man and the woman to have the ability to be able to do that. But God is still in control of life, always has been. God can shut up wombs that they cannot conceive. And God can open up wounds where they can when they were barren. You go to Genesis chapter 20, you find where Abraham goes to a place called Gerar. Abraham is on this journey and he comes before a king in the name of Abimelech. And he tells Sarah for the second time, you know, second experience, you tell them you're my sister. And so she does when the king takes her. But then God speaks to the king. God intervenes and God takes over 
It's God who's in control now. And he comes to the king. He said, be careful what you do to this woman, he says, because she's the wife of a man. He says, your very life is in my hand. Do not defile this woman. And Abimelech replies back. He says, what I've done, I've done the integrity of my heart. Uh, she said that he was her, her brother, and, and, uh, and he said, she's my sister. I've done this integrity in my heart. And the Lord said, yes, I know so, and I have kept you from sinning against me. I have kept you from sinning against me. And Abimelech uh, may not have recognized at the time, that's the only reason he was still breathing. I have kept thee from sinning against me. He says, now you restore the man back his wife. And if you do, he'll pray for you. But if you do not, just know that you're a dead man and all your family along with it. That sounds kind of like to me that God can cause life to cease. God can stop life if he wants to. And he was quite willing to stop the life of Abimelech and his family if he defiled the wife of Abraham and didn't restore her back to him. We come to the end of that chapter and Abraham prays for him. And the Bible says that God opened up the wombs of Abimelech and his family and also the maidens where they could conceive and have children because God had fast closed up their wombs. God closed them up. They weren't going to have any more children. They were going to cease to be a people and cease to be a nation. If he did not restore him back to Abraham, God can cause life to cease if he so desires to do so. In the 12th chapter of Acts, there's a man by the name of Herod. And Herod gives a great oration on this occasion and brought all praise and honor and glory to him, just bragging about himself. And the Bible says God sent an angel and smote him to death on that spot because he refused to give God the praise and the glory. God's able to do such things as that. And he did it. We have examples of it in the scriptures, of course. God caused life to cease for all humanity, with the exception of eight people with Noah and the ark, right? In that day before uh, the flood came and the multitudes upon the face of the earth, God looked and he saw uh, the great wickedness that was upon the face of this earth. And he repented and he made man to begin with. That word repent there doesn't have the same reference with God as it does with men because God has never done anything where he had to turn around, whatever. But it means that he just sighed. That's what the word means. He just looked at it and said, oh me. <laughs> when he saw what man had done, he says, oh me. He says to Noah, he instructs him to build an ark for the saving of him and his household. And he says, for all those upon the face of this earth, they shall perish. And they did. God sent a flood. The flood lasted 40 days and 40 nights. And Noah and his family, a total of eight, were delivered by the ark that Noah built by faith. And all humanity outside of Noah and his family, they all perished in the flood. God brought all about it in judgment. Over in the book of Exodus, you're going to find where God... Uh, the ninth, and, uh, ninth of ten, excuse me, the tenth uh, plague of the ten plagues he sent upon Egypt. The tenth plague was death what of the firstborn. And he tells Moses to, uh, you know, slay a lamb, put the blood on the side post and the lintel. And he says, at midnight I'll pass through, and where I see the blood, I'll pass over. Blood made the difference, didn't it? Blood still makes the difference. <laughs> it, makes the, it makes all the difference. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But while I do not see the blood, there shall be the death of the firstborn. And the firstborn of every Egyptian perished at midnight that night. 
But every firstborn of the Israelites was spared. Because God who gave life, God can still rule over life, you see. God can shut up wounds, and he can open up wounds. Uh, we go a little further with that. And you look in the 29th chapter of the book of Genesis, and you're going to find where Jacob now has married Leah, and he's married Rachel. And because, the Bible says, because he saw that Leah was despised. Because she was despised, God opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. And she's going to have six sons with Jacob. But you come to the next chapter, and you're going to find where it says, And God remembered Rachel, he hearkened unto her words, and he opened her womb. God can shut wombs where people cannot conceive and have children. God can open wombs where they can, where otherwise they would not have. Reading the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's a little lady by the name of Hannah. And her husband uh, has two wives, and having more than one wife never works. Assured, I can just assure you that. Uh, I don't know how in the world Solomon uh, lived as long as he did with all the wives he had. He had 700 of them. Can you imagine that? 700 wives under one roof. <laughs> but anyway, you'll find where he has two wives, and Peniah, she is having children, but the womb of uh, Hannah is barren. And Hannah prays about it, pours out her heart to God concerning this. And a little bit later on, you're going to find verse 19, chapter 1, where it says, and uh, Elkanah knew Hannah, means in an intimate manner, intimate way, and God remembered Hannah. And she conceived and brought forth one of the greatest men in Israel's history, a man by the name of Samuel. We're very familiar, of course, with Sarah, aren't we? A woman that's old and well-stricken in age. And yet, to fulfill the promise of God that God gave unto Abraham when he was 75 years old, she's going to conceive and bring forth a son, even though by nature her womb is dead. Go read Romans chapter 4, and you'll find where Abraham, uh, being not weak in faith, considered not his own body, now being dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. Not only is Sarah's womb dead, but Abraham is dead from the standpoint of having the ability to produce and bring forth children into this world. But God miraculously enabled Sarah to conceive and bring forth a son that they named Isaac. Same thing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Read about them in Luke chapter 1. The Bible says they were old and well-stricken in years. And I gave you the definition of that in recent times, right? You remember what the definition of old and well-stricken in years is? That means you're old and you're really old. So you get into the old category, and if you keep living, you go into the old and well-stricken in years category. <laughs> and that's where they're at. They've passed old. They're old and uh, well-stricken in years. They're really old now. And they can't have any children, but yet they're praying. It's obvious they're praying for a child. And the angel comes down and tells Zechariah, thy prayer has been heard. Thy prayers come up for more before God. Thy prayers have been heard. And listen, is going to conceive and bring forth a son. And you're going to call his name John. Zacharias was so gotten away with this, he didn't believe it. And he wasn't able to speak for nine months as a result of it. Power belongs unto God. God gave life and God can control life. God can stop life. He certainly did that with Herod in Acts 12, but he also did it with a husband and wife by the name of Ananias Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. 
And there's two husband-wife teams in the book of Acts. You want to be like one, not like the other. All right? You want to be like Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla is mentioned six times in the Word of God. Husband-wife, faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Great helpers of the Apostle Paul. You never read about one unless you read about them both. They're always together. Half the time it's Aquila and Priscilla, and half the time it's Priscilla and Aquila. That's the, that's the team that you want to follow after. Not Ananias and Sapphira's. You say, what's wrong with them, Brother Lawrence? Well, read Acts 5, we'll go find out. It was a time of great revival in the church. The church got off to a fantastic start. And the people were so excited, so moved, and so zealous for the cause of Christ, they were just selling whatever they had and bringing the entirety and putting it at the feet of the apostles to just distribute to the poor and those who stood in need. But Ananias and Sapphira had a parcel land and they sold it, but they only brought part of the money, put it at the feet of the disciples, which was their right to do, but they lied about it. They indicated they brought the entirety of it. And the Apostle Peter discerned that. It was revealed to the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter speaks to Ananias separate from uh, his wife. He said, why hast thou lied unto the Holy Ghost? Was it not within your own power while you had it? Yes, it was. You could have done with it whatsoever you wanted. You didn't even have to sell it. And when you sold it, it meant fine to brought part of it here and give it to us. But she should have told us what you were doing. But you lied. You said you brought the entirety of it to it. And when you said these words, the man fell down dead. They take him up and take him out and bury him because the Jews buried people immediately. Then his wife comes in. She don't even know her husband was dead. They didn't even notify her. And the same thing is said to her. The Bible says she fell down dead right there. Took her out and buried her. And then the next day he says, and fear came upon all the church. You think? <laughs> I think I'd go back to the closet in my prayer life and say, Lord, let me decide how much I'm going to give this Sunday. <laughs> I think uh, the amount just increased. <laughs> God, who gave life, can cause life to cease. He's done it many times. He does it sometimes in his judgment. You take the man we mentioned last uh, Sunday, I believe it was, Second Chronicles chapter 20. The king of Israel was out in battle and he was, uh, had all the armor on that uh, the soldiers had in that day. There was just one little spot in the back back there uh, where he didn't, wasn't covered and a man drew a bow at a venture and the arrow shot randomly, finds its place in that spot and slays him. Now here's an arrow just shot at random, just shot out in the air. But God guided that arrow right into that place in the back of the king of Israel providentially. You remember the case of David and Goliath? How that David went down to the brook and got five smooth stones, put one stone into the sling? Well, he's going to go out to battle against a giant, Goliath, who's between nine and ten foot tall, who likewise has all the armor of a warrior on. But right up here, where his eyes are, and right above his eyes is a bare spot. Right here. And David slings that stone, and the stone goes sailing through the air, finds his mark right there. David was good, but he won't that good. <laughs> He's good. And no question about it, as a shepherd boy, he'd learned that quite well. He was an expert in marksman. He's good, but he wasn't that good. God directed that arrow right to the spot, found the forehead of him right there. God can cause life to cease, but God can also extend life. You know, people sometimes reach the position that you've got a set time in this world to die. That's not true. 
in the book of Ecclesiastes, you start reading in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, um, to everything there is a season and a, a time for every purpose under the heavens. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die. Didn't say a set time to die. Didn't say a set time to die, but that word set is used in the Bible in other places because God said it. But I read also in the book of Ecclesiastes where it says, be not only much wicked or foolish, why should I die before thy time? You can live a wicked life, you can live an irresponsible life, be not oh much foolish. You can live a foolish life. I mean, you can, the speed limit is 70, and you can go down the highway at 85 and 90 all the time. You just increase your chances of leaving this world early. Why be not oh much foolish and wicked? Why should you die before your time? Man has a life expectancy. It has changed over the centuries. There was a time before the flood about, you know, uh, it was, uh, people lived hundreds of years. Then after the flood, man's life expectancy, it got a lot shorter. And now in this present day and age, I think, last time I heard, women have a life expectancy somewhere like about 78, and men about 74 or 5. Women always live longer than men, <laughs> statistically speaking. I don't know why, but anyway, statistically speaking, they do. But sometimes somebody lives to be 85, sometimes 90. Different ages. You can shorten your time in this world real easily by living foolishly and wickedly. But it's like when a woman conceives, there's a time to be born. When is that time? Approximately nine months after conception. Does it always work out to the day of nine months? Sometimes they're born two weeks early, three weeks early, sometimes two or three months early. Sometimes they're born a couple weeks late, you know. It's not always to the day, but approximately nine months after that, that's the time for that child to be born. Now, God set a time for the birth of Isaac. He tells Abraham and Sarah, they're set time next year. God set the time. And Isaac was born at that set time that God had established. Because God's got control. Power belongeth unto God, you see. God can sustain life. You go to the 38th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied and ministered during the reign of several kings. And right now he is prophesying during the time of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of those few good kings that Israel had. And Hezekiah gets sick. And his sickness is unto death. And the Lord tells him through the prophet Isaiah to get his house in order. Isaiah prays to God. And God hears his prayer, and here's how the answer of the prayer goes. He says to Hezekiah, I've heard thy prayer, I've seen thy tears, and thy life 15 years. He added 15 years to the life of Hezekiah. Providentially, God extended his life out 15 years to what it would have been had not Hezekiah turned his back to the wall, prayed to God about it, and God answered the prayer and heard his cry, and had 15 more years to his lifespan. In the second chapter of Luke, there's a man named Simeon. And the Bible says that uh, he had been shown Simeon by the Holy Ghost that he would not die till he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, why do you think it's worded that way? It tells me that he would not have lived to the day he lived had God not extended his life to do so. And so he goes into the temple, as he did day by day. And that day, he meets somebody by the name of Mary. And Mary has a little baby in her arms whose name is Jesus. 
And remember the promise is that he should not die till he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he sees the Lord's Christ. He sees the Messiah. He sees the one that's God's beloved son. But not only does he get to see the child, he gets to take the child and hold the child, embrace the child. This is always one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible to me. Here is a creature holding his creator in his arms. Here's a sinner holding his savior in his arms. Here's mortal man holding uh, immortality in his arms. Here is somebody holding Jesus. At the same time, Jesus is holding him. When you go to John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. I know my sheep. Hear my voice and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Where are they? They're in the hand of Jesus. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And nobody can pluck them out of my hand or the Father's hand. For I am the Father of one. You're in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Simeon is in the hand of Jesus while Jesus is in the arms of Simeon. <laughs> oh, I tell you, uh, I'm like David said in the 130th night song, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. <laughs> it's just too wonderful for me when I think about things like that. God can bring life to an end. And God can sustain life. As we live here in this world, I know there's many afflictions that we have. Uh, sicknesses that we can have, uh, one thing and another. But I tell you, God can overrule them as well. Because why? He's got the power. And uh, you know, remember over here in the third chapter of Exodus, when God has instructed Moses to go down to Egypt, bring his people out of there, and Moses is very hesitant about it. And Moses is very reluctant about it. And the Lord's going to show him that he's not going to sit him down there without being well and adequately equipped. So he's got a rod in his hand. Of course, the first thing he tells him to do is cast the rod down. He did it, turned into a serpent, and Moses fled. And then he tells him to pick him up, and Moses got him by the tail, and when he did, it turned back into the rod. But then he tells Moses to put his hand into his bosom, just like I would do here if I put my hand in my coat. And he pulled it out, it was leprous. God gave him leprosy in his hand. But he did that to display his great power. To let him know that the one who could give him leprosy his hand was going to go with him. So he tells him, put it back in there again. He puts it back in there again. He pulls it out. It's restored. It's restored. He displayed his power to Moses. He said, Moses, you're not going down there ill-equipped. You're not going there unqualified. I'm going to go with you. And that rod in your hand is symbolic of my power that's going with you, you see. Miriam... Moses' older sister, we come to Numbers chapter 12. You'll find where Moses' older sister, Miriam, her and Aaron uh, get kind of put out with Moses. A little jealousy involved here, I think, and envy. And uh, they are questioning his authority. And God's displeased with that. And God calls them on the carpet for it. And he called Moses, he put his hand on Moses. Moses was his man. And his servant. And so he causes Miriam to become leprous. She's got full leprosy. Not just in her hands. She's got full leprosy. He gave her leprosy for judgment. He gave Moses leprosy and healed him immediately to show his power. But with Miriam, his sister, it's judgment. And she cries out. Asks them to pray for her. And Aaron prays for her. Her brother prays for her. And the Lord is going to answer the prayer of Aaron. He's going to restore her health back to her, but not for seven days. 
he says, she's going to be out of the camp seven days, and then you can bring her back in. In the ninth chapter, 17th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the Lord Jesus Christ goes through Samaria, and when he's in Samaria, he's going to find ten lepers that meet him, and the Lord is going to cleanse these ten lepers because he has all power. He can control those things that affect our health. He's going, to, he's going to cleanse all ten of those lepers. And those ten lepers then go on their way. Uh, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's hard to understand how somebody would have leprosy and have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ and him cleanse them and then, then just continue right on their way. But then one stops and turns around with a loud voice, glorifies God and gives him thanks. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, didn't I cleanse ten of you? Where's the other nine? And I wonder sometimes, where's everybody at? <laughs> because leprosy is a type of sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ put it away on Calvary. And legally speaking, he put it away. And he put it away from you experientially. When he borns you, the Spirit of God, he cleansed you like Titus 3 and 3 says. Three and five, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his uh, mercy as Satan, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. If we could just comprehend and understand in the fullness that we, you know, uh, uh, about this matter, that God has cleansed us for glory, then I tell you, we'd never miss coming to the house of God. Unless we're just beyond our control. There was a man by the name of Naaman. You go back and read 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a captain of the Syrian army, but he was a leper. Won't go into details of that story. Hopefully you know it. But eventually he's going to go down to where the man of God is. He's going to dip in the river Jordan three, uh, three times. When he comes up the third time in obedience to God's word, he's cleansed of his leprosy. God demonstrated his power. Leprosy was incurable except for the miraculous intervention of God. People had leprosy were known as the walking dead. You were cast out. You didn't have any fellowship with anybody. You, you know, you were contaminated in other words. You're a cast out, you're an outcast. As an outcast, you're a cast out. Your only hope was the miraculous hand of God. And God demonstrated time and time and time again. God had control over all manner of disease. Go over here to Mark chapter 1, and you'll find where they brought unto him people of all manner of disease, and he healed and cleansed every one of them. Power belongs unto God. Pilate didn't understand it. Satan didn't understand it. I want us all to understand it. <laughs> that all power belongs unto God, you see. He gave life. He can cause life to cease. He can extend life. He can control the things around us here in life. And I have no doubt in my mind this morning that my own personal experience in life, were it not for the God of glory, has all power in his hand, I would not be speaking to you here this morning. I would not be. I'd already been gone from this world, this earth. I've given you some of those examples in years past. You know, where I have no doubt that the intervening hand of God came into my life and spared me for whatever reason. And I look in the life of people like the Apostle Paul and men like that and Peter and, and see how close they came to death and how God delivered them time and time and time again uh, from death. But then finally at some point he allowed death to come. But without thinking about that recently, that's not so bad. Because while God has delivered me time and time and time again, death is going to deliver me from all the things I was delivered of. <laughs> Do you understand what I just said? <laughs> 
God's going to deliver me from all danger. God's going to deliver me from all problems and sorrows and heartaches and afflictions and uh, all kind of things in this world here, from this present evil world, and death's going to take care of it. <laughs> when death comes, <laughs> you're spared from any more anguish. You're spared from any more sorrow. Now, having said all that, I'm still going to uh, watch. I'm going to stop at the stop sign and stop light, and I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to try to hang out as long as I can. Uh, how about you? I don't think anybody's volunteering to jump on the bus for glory this morning. But I tell you, when the time comes, it's going to be a deliverance from all the things of this world. And God's able to sustain our lives in miraculous ways. We'll go over here in the book of Elijah, uh, excuse me, in the life of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah prayed it wouldn't rain. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. The great famine's come. And in that famine, we find where water is drying up, but God directs him to a certain brook. And there's water in that brook. And God sustained him by directing him to where there was still some water. And then God's going to feed him with ravens. Of all animals, all creatures of his creation, God overrules their nature. He's going to send ravens twice a day, morning and evening. He wanted to keep Elijah slim and trim, so he fed him twice, not three times. <laughs> so he's going to feed him in the morning, going to feed him in the evening. And those ravens are going to bring flesh to him in the morning, meat, going to bring to him in the evening. God provided the meal, and he used the ravens to bring it. But then finally the brook dried up. So God tells him to go to another location. He says, for I have commanded a widow woman to sustain thee. A widow woman, not a rich man, a widow woman. Widow woman is one of the poorest people in the land in that day. Why in the world would God command a widow woman? But he did. And he gets to where she's at and he recognizes who it is. He won't go into details of that story either. Certainly one of my favorites. But she tells him, I got enough meal in the barrel and order the cruise to make one last cake for me and my son. I plan on making that, eat that, and we have no hope of anything else. He said, well, that's fine. He said, make me a cake first, and then go and do what you said you do. He said, because until it rains again, there'll always be meal in the barrel and oil in the cruise. And in the middle section of the Bible, you're going to find where that uh, expression, until it rains again, means about a year. You see, I have to think right quick here because I figured that up the other day. Two meals a day for three people there in about a year's time. I think it got to be over 2,000 meals. When there, God, out of, a, out of an oil, a cruise of oil and a barrel of meal that was just enough to make one meal, God expands and multiplies it to over 2,000. Because God's able to sustain us. God sustained an individual in Elijah. He sustained an entire nation in their journey, uh, in their wilderness journey. When Israel walked uh, through the uh, wilderness, they walked how long? They walked 40 years in the wilderness. And the Bible says their shoes never wore out and their clothes never wore out. That made a lot of women mad, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I better say something about the men, I reckon. I'm in hot water here. <laughs> 
Imagine that. 40 years. You're wearing these clothes every day and 40 years. They, they still are taking care of you. 40 years. You got shoes uh, and they're not wearing out. That God's taking care of you. And for 40 years, God sends down this uh, food from heaven called manna. And he brings quails down. And I love how poetically this is recorded for us in the 78th Psalm. Read Psalm 78 and notice how how this is recorded, how God commanded the clouds above. How he opened up the windows of heaven and gave them angels food. (laughs) That's the same thing you read back over here in the book of Exodus, except now David's recording this experience poetically. Beautiful language. Angels food. Windows of heaven, pouring it out. Here it comes, because God sustained them for 40 years. Aren't you happy about that? I'll tell you, when I read Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, when the Lord said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things be added to you. Read back above there, and you'll see what He's talking about. He says, Consider the sparrows of the field, how they sow not and reap not, and gather not, yet God uh, takes care of them and feeds them on a regular basis. He says, take a look at the lilies of the field, how they spin not nor toil not. Says, Sobolov's glory is not arrayed like one of these. God clothed the lilies and God feeds the sparrows. Uh, the very hairs of your head are numbered. Uh, uh, a sparrow can't fall to the ground without the knowledge of God. If God can feed the sparrows and God can clothe the lilies, he says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Now, if you don't believe that power belongs unto God and God can't bring things to you, then, you know, you're not going to believe a text like Matthew 6.33. One of the most amazing things that's <laughs> happened to me, I guess happened last year in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, some of you know what I'm going to tell you as I start to tell it because you're involved. But I knew that I was going to have to have a new roof put on my house somewhere down the road not too long. And that kind of had me worried. <laughs> and one day I see this, uh, these cars and trucks just going down the street. It had roofclaim.com on it. And I'm wondering what in the world all that's about. So I finally take the initiative to go down there and find out what it's about. And so I talk to the supervisor. And he tells me who they are and that they will inspect your roof for free. And they'll give you an evaluation, let you know whether or not you might ought to put in a claim. So I'm going to make a long story real short. It won't last over 20 minutes. I agree to let them come. They do an inspection, make a decision, call the claim, uh, claim department, comes out, does an inspection, Lord, uh, Lord blesses, I get me a brand new roof, $24,000 worth. And, I, and, I, and you're talking about taking a burden off of me. So I thought, well, I'll just, you can refer people. So I referred Mark to him. Mark got a new roof. I referred Timothy to him. Timothy got a new roof. I referred Karen's sister, Mitzi, in North Carolina to him. She got a new roof. I referred to my brother, my nephew, my niece. They all got new roofs. I referred brother and sister Green, Wayne and Eva, new roof. Brother Jerry Patton, Sister Nina, new roof. Brother John, Sister Janet Tidwell, new roof. 
10. Count in mind, 10. People got new roofs. You tell me God isn't a miracle worker? I told Brother Jerry and Sister Nina sometime to leave kind of quick. But this particular day, they hung around. And I sat down with him out there on the pew. And I told him the story. And I said, you want me to refer you, Brother Jerry? Brother Jerry, yeah, yeah. He said, I just got on my roof the other day and measured it. You get a, a cost of supplies. I got to put a new roof on. Send them on out here. They did it. Brother Jerry got a new roof. He told me later on, he lay there in bed, just preaching, said, this really happening to me. I said, please to hang around. <laughs> I just can't hardly believe that. And, and, and I, if you want more details after church, come to me and I'll talk to you about it. God is able to do these kind of things and bring things your way that you would never expect. From sources you would never even dream about. He gives life. He can stop life. He can extend life. He can sustain life. And provide for us along life's pathway in ways that we would never even consider and think about coming our way. Power belongs to God. God has spoken once. Twice I have heard this, that power belongs unto God, and unto him belong mercies unto us.